Being quarantined in our homes, away from many, if not all, of our loved ones, is not a thing to celebrate. But it does afford us, despite real fears and discomfort, a great deal of time for meditation and reflection. Hopefully, God and Other Delicacies can be one of the ways in which you find a sliver of optimism in your day and the welcome warmth of connecting deeply with someone you've just met for the first time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in this big, small world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Aaron Yu to the show. Aaron is a professional television, film, and stage actor. You've seen him in television series like The Tomorrow People, Hawaii Five-O, and Startup. In films like Disturbia, 21, and Everything Before Us, he was just playing the lead in Lincoln Center Theater's world premiere of The Headlands by Christopher Chen until COVID-19 sank its teeth into everything. I met Aaron way back in 2005 when we were shooting our beloved little film Rocket Science, which ended up winning the Best Directing Prize at Sundance for our dear Jeffrey Blitz that year. It was one of the great experiences of my young career, and I'm always glad when I get to spend some time with my castmates from it, like this man on the phone today— Welcome to the show, Aaron. Nick, or should I say Detours. Oh, wow, you're going to drop it right away. Okay, <laughs> all right, you tell the story. I mean, do you so, even remember it is, the, is a good question. I, I, this, is what I, this is what I remember about Detours de Augusto. Uh, we met in the summer of 2005 on uh, my great. very first movie, um, not yours, but my very first movie down in Baltimore, which at the time we were told that Baltimore had the highest murder rate in the United States of America. Yes. Uh, they gave us a vehicle, several vehicles? No, I think they I think, gave all... I think we, we all had rentals, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all had rentals, but we all would pile into one car and drive around together. And our kind of designated driver after a while became you. Yeah. And so that we never got... To where we were going. You and I were the oldest, right? You and I were the oldest. We were the the, yeah. We were the oldest. Yeah. And this was like pre GPS. Yes, for sure. We we would always set out with a plan, and like an hour and a half later, we would be like, Nick, where the fuck are we? Oh man! And then we had a thing where we, if anyone dropped the worst joke of any night, no matter where we were, we would be like, "You're walking home." Yes, right. I forgot about that. You're walking home. Yeah, we were very young. We were all in a new-ish city. Although it's like anything, man. I was a young kid and then you turn down a neighborhood and like some people look at you and they're just like, you're probably lost. (laughs) Yeah, also it's like, we all look like, I mean, we all look like we were like 15 years old. I I had a bowl cut. Oh, man. That never makes you a lot of friends anywhere. I mean, what does it say when we were the oldest and we were 25? Before we go too far down, before the detour train goes too far anywhere else. I want to know what it's like for you in New York right now. You know, obviously we all know what's going on. You're the one that's been there of people that are close to me. You're the first person I've really talked to about this since COVID-19 has been where it's at. As of right now, for those listening, we're recording this. Just the top of the news today is that the death toll had sort of gone down for a couple of days. Now it's back up again, but it's also appears to be giving signs that maybe New York is passing its peak if everybody still plays by the rules. So what's it like there now? I mean, it's, uh, my wife's been calling it vanilla sky. I'm sure everyone Mm. has, but it's just, 
it's just empty. It's weird because I left New York for eight years and I somehow managed to be here for 9-11, the 2003 blackout, Hurricane Sandy, and now this. So I've like... Wow. You've, you've caught all weird, the major moments. All, oh, wow. All like the crazy, all the crazy stuff. It is grotesque and beautiful in a way that is regrettable, but I hope it's not, you know, profane to say that there is something strangely arresting about this overly busy city coming, becoming a ghost town, you know? Sure. No, so, I, I think so that's that. very well put. And for those of us that are lucky enough, that are fortunate enough to not be living in an absolute desperation situation right now, the time for some reflection and to soak in some of the beautiful oddity of it uh, is real. I feel that on my end, but yeah, it must be extraordinary for you. And the weird thing about this uh, crisis is, especially in a place like New York, it is actually such an enclosed private tragedy because of the fact that we're all having a shelter in place. And like, I'm looking out my window right now and we live in like, frankly, like a wealthier part of the city and my wife and I have been remarking about how many million dollar loft apartments that we can see from our window that actually seem to be empty. And you would think like all the lights would light up because everyone should just be stuck at home. But like here, so many of them don't because a lot of these people had the financial wherewithal to go to a second home, go upstate, go out wow. east. You know, like you can kind of see firsthand how this pandemic is divided so clearly along class lines. It is a an essay or an indictment on the society that we built. Like a lot of the stuff that's horrifying to me and to my wife as we sit here and we try not to get too like overwhelmed by what we are consuming, we're consuming it the way the same way you are, right? I'm looking at the same the numbers the same way you are on television or on my phone. Mm -hmm. But outside my window it looks like eerily peaceful and we're, we're kind of alone. Like a lot of our neighbors seem to have actually just abandoned the city, you know, more power to them. They have the wherewithal and, you know, God bless. But it is interesting because I'm reading stuff about certain communities that don't have that kind of financial luxury and they're getting hit the hardest because they also are like more pushed upon each other in, in, in the way they have to live their lives, you know? Yeah. And many of them I imagine are probably still, the quote unquote essential workers, people that are working yeah. restaurants or yeah. transportation or yeah. um, certain cleaning jobs, um, yeah. uh, trucking and I was jobs. Listening to a th yeah. I was listening to a thing today, you know, it's like they got to go to work on the buses and, yeah, or, or the train. There's no way to socially distance your, yourself on, uh, on public transportation. I mean, you can only do so well, especially if now you can get it because other people are breathing near you. Like that's, Nick, do you think two, two and a half years from now or whatever it is when we're all immune? Right, and there's uh, shots and all that stuff. There's shots and all of that Vaccines. stuff. <laughs> do you think people are going to be like, I'm just not going to wash my hands for the next four days just because I can? That's very funny. What like, that says to me is, so instantly I was like, he's going to ask me a question about being OCD. And I think the answer is yes. And I was like, oh no, he's going the opposite way, which is to say humans are crazy and diverse and they will do all kinds of things. Some people are going to be totally reckless and do weird, reckless things just because they want to, even if it isn't reckless, quote unquote, in that time, because the, the fear has passed. But others, I think their life is going to be changed. They're just, I mean, I 
wouldn't be surprised if I just think about illness and contagion in a way where I'm just aware of it now the rest of my life. It might have altered the way that I think about the world around me in that way. Yeah. I mean, like you think about everything that you touch. Yeah. Like you're like, oh, I just touched the handle of that thing. Yeah. Germaphobes are really having the laugh right now, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like people that have, we've made fun of germaphobes on TV shows for so long. And now those people, and, the people and that are germaphobes like, germaphobes and doomsday preppers. Yes. Are yes. Having their moment. It makes me think about the thematic focus of your podcast because. I was just in my head thinking when you were saying that about about how kaleidoscopic the human response is, you know? I find that people use religion as an excuse to focus their lens in a way that serves them. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but I, I just mean that structures of belief are used by individuals and by groups and societies to defend their ideas and their actions. So it's not surprising that people are like, you're infringing on my religious rights when you're telling me I can't collect 2,000 people together to worship. Well, I think there's this impulse for righteousness. This is one of these things that I, I really get behind is we want to feel right. We want to feel like we're doing it the right way. And one of the ways that you are able to get people into a cohesive bond is by telling them all that we're doing it the right way and that if you don't do it this way, that God will punish you. And that means if other people we meet along the way are not doing this this way, then we'll punish, then God will punish them. The tension, of course, is that there are too many people on this earth and too many different types of ways of living and being to where you can never be entirely right. So you have to sort of live with this tension that the thing you believe in, you believe is the right way to push it, but that we have to somehow still be open and loving with other people that are coming in so that we have to love diversity somehow while, while also having some moral compass. Yeah, I think one of the things that you said or the, where you started this with righteousness, I think there's a tendency as a group, we look at people who are religious and you're like, oh, that makes them self-righteous or righteous or whatever. Instead of realizing that like, no, that's an innate characteristic of humanity that feeds into religious zeal or observation. First of all, it's like I'm sitting here trapped in my apartment being like, well, you people in, in your city or whatever town that you guys didn't shelter in place soon enough, well, now you're going to learn some lessons or whatever about what that is. And I'm like, I don't want to think that. That's terrible. Right. You know? That's your righteous streak. <laughs> and I have them too. I'm not trying like, to put you on. I mean, I have them too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I you know I'm, 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 I'm an open book about that stuff. I'm not a perfect person. And, and, and I try to catch myself when I think those things. But it's like, I also don't want to deny that I'm a flawed individual and I have my moments where there are moments of schadenfreude. You know what I mean? That's You're human. Not, These are human things. Yeah. But like, that's the kind of thing where it's like, it wasn't religion or maybe it's religion that gave that to me in particular because I was the son of a pastor. But I think about my dad and my 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 parents, my my church that I grew up in and full of a bunch of Korean people. And I was always like, as a kid being like, everyone in the Bible is white. Like, <laughs> not even understanding at that point that actually everyone in the Bible is, is brown. Yes, right, right? exactly. So I, look, I look at those Raphaelite paintings and whatever, and I was like, Sure, oh, sure, so did I. How did, this, how did this happen, right? And part of that is because at its core, the message that not just Christianity, but Islam, like some of these great faiths that proselytize so much, they touch upon our natural instincts toward things like righteousness of wanting to be like, I know better than you. Like, 
I got accepted into the circle and you have yet to come join me. Even if it's in a benevolent fashion and you're like, I want you to come join me. It's still like, there's still a, a tiering, like a stratification that we are, we just have tendencies toward that makes us naturally uh, uh, um, welcoming of religious beliefs. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know and, and to spin the other side of that, there's a sense of peace in knowing that you're doing the right thing. It can be negative. There are certainly examples of religious impulses being very, very destructive and negative. And then there are these yeah. impulses of religious, religious impulses that are, that are historically documented of them being benevolent and magnanimous and altruistic. And those things are, there's something beautiful, beautiful about knowing I'm taken care of in whatever this particular religious belief is. And there are those people that are religious that are not accepting of other people's beliefs. And then there are those people that are religious that are, have figured out a way to own their own religious beliefs and also be accepting and loving of other people's religious beliefs. And so that's yet again, these disparate ways of living with the same information, the same book, uh, or the same books. And it's fascinating to me. And I try to be, I came up religious. I had an, a non-religious turn. And now I'm in this place where I'm really trying to be fair to both sides, but mostly I'm just kind of in awe of how immense it all is and trying to connect like what brings the world together today when a religion isn't big enough or a government isn't big enough, but these common enemies are what brings the world together, right? Like COVID-19, somehow it brings the world together. Of course, then they're I'm going to probably edit this shit out too, but like it's just like, apart. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's funny. Okay, man. Well, look, you left us with a wonderful cliffhanger, which is that you are the son of a pastor. We haven't even gotten to either of the initial inciting questions of this show, but it goes to show you that we're old friends and we have a lot to talk about, not only between us, but about what's going on in the world. So we'll jump right back into Aaron's, his more specific life story and religious journey right after the break. Hey there, if you're one of the fans listening to the show right now on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you took a second to just scroll to the bottom, hit five stars on the ratings, wrote a one to two sentence review. It really helps the show find new listeners and it means a lot to me because I love getting your feedback. Thanks. All right, everybody, we're back with Aaron Yu. And as it happens sometimes with old friends, we don't even start the show until the second segment. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, of course, the show has already begun. It was beautiful. It's lovely to get to hear from you. And it's so interesting for me to get to hear about your take on New York. I thought that was really, really well said and kind of brought me into what you're going through. The question I want to get to, which you already referenced, um, you're, you were born the son of a pastor. So how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Oh, yes. I was introduced to God in my life um, at something like minus 25 weeks. So my parents met in Korea when my mom was trying to uh, get her immigration papers to come to the U.S. to study, to get her Ph.D. In like uh, 1970s, Korea didn't have any graduate programs for biochemistry. And so my father uh, met her during the application process and in a way that I'm not sure would fly these days, courted my mom. They, she put off traveling to the States. They got married. Uh, they had my sister. And then my mom was like, well, I still want to go get my PhD. My dad was like, I'll co come with you and work to support us while you study. And then they came here and got pregnant. And my sister was being raised by my grandmother back in 
Korea. And when my mom was, when she was around 15 weeks pregnant with me, she was walking down the side of a, a highway in Texas. A station wagon came and hit her at like highway speeds. Whoa. And yeah, she went like flying in the air apparently. And so she gets rushed to the hospital. My dad has to hitch a ride to the hospital and he gets there. And as it's been told to me, they come out and they're like, listen, we think we can save your wife, but you should just be prepared. Your baby's probably not going to make it. Wow. And my dad came from a very religious family, um, very Christian family back in Korea. And so he, you know, got down on his knees in the waiting room and was like, you know, dear God, if you just save my wife and my unborn child, I'll dedicate the rest of my life to you. So they came out and they were like, listen, your wife seems, your baby seems perfectly fine and your wife doesn't seem to have a scratch. So my dad decided that was a miracle and went into the seminary. Whoa. So I was born to a minister who took up the cloth because of me. And Whoa, so, man, so I don't think I was, have yeah. heard that story. That's oh, amazing. That story. Yeah, so that's kind of, that's, you know, my that's where my biblical name comes from. Of course. I don't even have a Korean, I don't even have a Korean name. My, my, my name is only Hebrew. Um, so when, I, when I'm in Korea, people are like, what kind of name is that? And I'm like, it's from the Bible. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> wow, so Aaron, that's it, amazing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is. And it's also one of these things where like you, when you're a kid and you're like chafing at the restrictions of being a pastor's kid, the idea that my dad became a minister in part because of something having to do with me always felt like so ironic. And you're like, no, I was the maker of my own doom. Yeah, right. Right. Was there pressure to live up to that? So like there were two I mean, jokes in my head. One is that anything that you've ever done where you made a mistake, it's like it's because you were hit by a car when you were in the womb. But then, totally. um, then the other thing, though, is that it's you're like a miracle. It everything. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, my father always used to say that he found me uh, when he was out hunting with my brothers and I was being raised by a pack of wolves. Just because that was like his way of always saying that I was different than him. So, you know, you're the miracle baby, though. That's the other side of it. You're the miracle child. Yeah, Were you always it, the miracle child? Was that always being like referenced I mean, or was that I something that was just in the like, background? No, I mean, I was always like the golden boy because because of that. In the thing that I'm writing right now, I had to like, uh, as you do, mining a little bit of your own story. What I found in my research was there was a greater tendency for female babies to survive premature births at the really dangerously early ages. Viability now has dropped down to like 22 weeks. But in those really dangerous weeks from 22 to 30, girls in these studies statistically survive at much higher rates than boys do. Interesting. No real explanation for that. But anyway, when you were talking about how you, what you're curious about is how much of your, your spiritual understanding or belief or questioning is, it was imprinted on you at a young age. Well, yeah, we were talking a little bit about this off mic, right? When I, we were talking about yeah. the fact that, um, that I had wanted to be a priest when I was very, very young, that I had this strong impulse. That's what you're referencing? Yeah, it is inextricable. I think for most people who have had it, or anyone who has had anything indoctrinated into them from toddlerhood or birth, at the end of the day, it's just going to be inextricable from who you are, no matter how far you journey in life. Like, it, even if you reject it, that rejection is very definitional to your person. 
right? Um, it's it's not the first point. The rejection can never be the first point. Whatever you're, yeah, exactly. it's not the starting exactly. point. It can just only be I an mean, adjustment from the starting point. Yeah, exactly. I watched the Ten Commandments like every year of my mm -hmm. goddamn life. Like, <laughs> and I love that movie too. Even that alone, if you think about the movie, any movie that you've watched every year of your life, like that stuff, something of that affects you as a person in, in, in at least some small way, you know? Absolutely. It reflects the questions that your house wants to talk about, the subject matter that that becomes a part of your everyday conversation. So the Ten Commandments is a thing you can ask yourself is, what was it like for me to watch the Ten Commandments so often? And, why, and how has that changed me? And so let me ask you that, which is, what happens to you as you're growing up and as you're in high school and as you're going through these? You know, the most insight we've gotten at this point is you felt a little burdened by it but I, I don't in what way i'm not entirely not, sure yet yeah i mean i think you i think you can't i think there's no way to not be burdened by it people who are pastors kid kids understand that the joke is if a pastor has two kids one goes off and goes to a good school or like starts their own church and the other one winds up in jail there was like this acceptance of a lot of pressure to set a good example to be the good face saving face in terms of your family or your parents is like a huge thing in, in, in the culture, right? Like don't embarrass your parents. I guess everyone lived in fear of that. At what point did you stop being a Christian? Or when did you, did you never stop it? And when did you, and did you get in fights with your father? Did you have to bucket? Did you hide all of this oh. stuff? You know, we've all done things over the years that are breaking certain rules, but did you break them in private? Have you always been hiding your life? Did you ever have to go I mean, I, head to head with your dad? No, not not because of that. So I, I'll back up and say I've always been a skeptic. Like even when I was a little kid, even when I even growing up in the church from the earliest days, like I love the drama of the Bible as like a piece of literature. I mean, it's pretty dry, but it, it, in terms of like actual story and dramatis personae, it is unbeatable in a way. The story is always drew me like demons and punishment and and whales and and resurrection and armies destroying each other curses and biblical plagues like that stuff is probably why I'm in the entertainment field but I was never I was always like but why but like but how did we all come from these two people as cool of a story as that is like that doesn't really make any sense to me Mm. And faith requires you to accept things, certain very basic things that don't have a reasonable explanation. And I'm unable to do that with political beliefs, which I, I think a lot of people are. And I'm definitely unable to do that in, in a religious sense. You know, like when I was a little kid, I was like, mm, but why? Like seven, eight. And I obviously couldn't really do that, voice that in church or in public because you know, I didn't want to show up my parents like that, but I did press my dad about it. And my dad, I remember my, I remember being like, when I was like some, somewhere around eight or nine, I was like, dad, Genesis doesn't make any sense. There's no way this happens in seven days and dinosaurs exist. And I love dinosaurs. I was like all about dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. um, and I would never let up on that. And so my dad went and like did all this like research and wrote a dissertation about it 
and uh, it took him like several years. And then when I was when I was around eleven, he was like, "Well, listen. So here's the thesis. In the original Aramaic, the word is actually instead of days, it means periods of time. And at some point, like if you go back apparently and like look at like let's say like the Dead Sea Scrolls or something, that you will see this word that was translated into ancient Hebrew and then from ancient Hebrew into Latin. And eventually at some point along the way, it became days. But it, it just referred to epics or periods or whatever. And those epics could have been however long they were. And he's like, so when it says seven days, it really just means seven stages. And I was like, all right, that's cool. Good argument. Sorry you had to write 200 pages for that. Yeah, right. Well, but, I like that too. That's pretty good. I mean, that's a nice way of looking at that. I think that's it is a beautiful story to look at in that way. Um, no, it is. It is. But it still didn't make me, like, I love this story. But I'm like, I got nothing for, you know, this guy that died 2,000 years ago that I don't think is the son of God. Okay, and, so that's that's good. But it seems like what I'm getting here you had an open dialogue with your dad about this stuff. He seemed to be a good listener to you about maybe your uh, skepticism. Um, no. Okay. I would say he's a good listener. <laughs> I would say that my dad wanted to be right, and he was willing to write 200 pages. I see. <laughs> and <laughs> I will say that my, and look, and I, I, my dad and I had a lot of issues growing up, a lot of strife growing up. And in, in a lot of ways, my turn away from the church, although to be, to be fair, I don't know that I was ever could ever consider myself as a person that had actual faith. But my turn away from the church had a lot to do with my relationship with my father and um, how difficult that was when I was a kid. And only later as an adult, you know, much later, like after you and I were like, maybe right around the time you and I first met, or even later than that, I had this like kind of epiphany where I thought, because like my parents and I have this like don't ask, don't tell um, kind of policy when it comes to religion, right? Mm -hmm. They don't ask me if I go to church. I don't tell them that I don't. One of the things is I do hope they don't find your podcast <laughs> and are not listening to this episode. But uh, we have a happy understanding, like silent understanding about that. And part of the reason for that is at some point I realized after I went through that same thing that you had talked about, I think maybe off mic or maybe in the previous section where you had said, like, I went from being really religious to being against it to now being like appreciative of it. Like I had my own bell curve in that, in that general path as well. And I remember one of the, the reason that brought me back around to like being able to appreciate what is beautiful and good about people who have faith is coming to peace with my parents and my father, especially, and also realizing that, you know, here this man went into the service of God because of me in a way. And I wondered like, is it his, does it weigh on him or is it his, is, is it his burden to bear to think that like, to, to know to in the back of his mind that I am not a person of faith, you know? And I had a lot of like, that makes me sad in a way. Like mm -hmm. I'm never going to be, like I'm just not that person. I don't think I've ever been that person. Mm -hmm. um, but it does 
there's something like heartbreaking about that, you know? So all of that later in life really made me kind of at least put to bed my angst about my own personal relationship with religion and how it directly affected me growing up. It's like, that's just part of my history now. And my sister's super Christian. My parents are super Christian. We all have a great relationship. You know, I, one of the things I was saying before about, (laughs) I don't know, I can't believe I'm going back to Charlton Heston and the 10 commandments this many times, Mm -hmm. but one of the things I was saying about watching that movie every year is that even this, the act of, I think I did at one point in my life have some measure of hero worship for that character in that story. And even in just trying to imitate in some way, even subconsciously, that kind of heroic ideal, I think defined me as a better person than, than I would have been otherwise. And I do think like many structures of faith-based morality, like that's what they do at their best. It's to give people without, a, without another avenue, like a way to have something to emulate that is appreciably positive and good. For me, the problem also was that I can look at that on one sense, but then the sort of main religious figure in my life being my father and he and I didn't have a good relationship, that sort of created a, the juxtaposition of those two things kind of really create, like was an eye-opening experience for me. It's almost like like watching the bread being made and seeing, do you know what I mean? Like, Mm. It's hard to have a naive view of your religion when the person who is the the font of it is, you know, fighting with you at home. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, this is a very good point to leave for our last break. And we're going to chat a little bit about where we want to go in the final segment. By the way, God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com, and I'll put you on the list. All right, everybody, we're back with Aaron. So some very cool things came out for me in the last segment. And, this, and one of the reasons they're interesting to me is that they're different than me. You were a skeptic from the very beginning. You kind of mentioned at seven, eight years old, you're already asking your dad, what about that? What about that? And right. you sort of referenced that your father, that I, you know, I kind of questioned, you know, does that mean your father was accepting or was he open to listening? You're like, not necessarily a listener. He wanted, he definitely entertained your arguments and then came up with what he thought were better arguments to justify his position. It left you in a place where you sort of both realized at a certain point you can no longer talk about this. So you kind of start your journey of your life and they go their way. Your parents remain very Christian. He's still a pastor today. Is that right? Uh, he's retired. He's retired now. Your sister remains Christian. Off mic, you mentioned that your sister and you were very close. Yes, but she found her way back to the faith. Or to be honest, she found her way into the faith after leaving my parents' house. I would say that our, our house growing up didn't promote us being particularly uh believers. Is there anything you want to say about that in particular? No, I I mean, the only thing I would say is that I I don't think this is a a unique experience. I think if you talk to a lot of 
children of religious um, leaders, you would find a lot of uh, them, a lot of us, see too much, see far too far behind the curtain, mm. and and it, it and it makes it very hard, if not impossible, to take what is being said publicly at face value when you see everything behind closed doors, you know? Yes, I get that very well. I think that's very interesting, man. You would ask me off mic about whether I had a defining spiritual moment. I don't, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun. Yeah, well, here, let me set go. the stage for you here then. I, I just think that was a very, I think that was beautifully said. In the recap of here of what I want to bring to you is that like where we are in this story is that you have, you're able to express a love for the literature, a love for the drama. It doesn't seem to me that what you're saying is you were resentful necessarily of the book itself. You were questioning early on, but you didn't necessarily have to, your break wasn't necessarily a break from your fervent love of the religion. It was more of a break from essentially your family business to some extent. It's almost like you yeah. broke kind of from the family business. Not that your father was telling you that you need to be a pastor, no, but it's more actually, like you were really kind of breaking from that more so than having been a really devout young child. I mean, that's a really interesting, like that's a very sharp perspective uh, on it. Yes, I would say that's probably a better way of putting it than anything else. Yeah, that's interesting. And not to say that, not to say that uh, my father's uh, ministry was a business or that all religion is a business. I mean, obviously there are aspects of it that are, but that um, in large part, there's so much more to it, even at its best, than simply good people doing good works. Like that's such a that's such a naive simplification of what goes on in a church of any kind. Right. You know, there is a community community building aspects to it. There's, there's internal strife and drama. My dad got kicked out of, he got forced out of the first church he started. Wow. By some ambitious younger deacons that wanted to take the church in a new direction. I didn't know any of this at the time. I was like eight years old or something. So he uh, started a church in a neighbor, new church in a neighboring town and uh, started from scratch again. And wow, that's wow. like not something you associate with people of the faith, but that stuff goes on everywhere. It is, it is a structure of a community structure like any other. One so of it the was, things. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was on. ugly to you. It was just like, there was an ugliness in that. Not that you're calling your father's belief ugly and not, we're not trying to do that. You were just you like, know, you'd seen too much behind the curtain. Use, ugly is an interesting thing. Maybe ugly is a, the right word, but I, the word that comes to me is profane. Mm. Like as, like it is so human behind the curtain. It's so every church is just a drama of small human limitations and frailties. Mm. If you dig into almost any church, I guarantee you the story you get out of it is not about God or faith or whatever. It's about whatever that community is, whatever their whatever their internal gripes and issues are. And a lot of a lot of secrets you probably would never otherwise know about a community of people um, or a certain group of families. Mm. And it's theater. Yeah, it's theater. Totally theater. Anyway, go so on. So this you is said, good. Yeah. This is good. So this is kind of where I wanted to get. 
one thing I asked you was like, do you have any of these, did you have a kind of spiritually defining moment? Because here's this, here, here we are. You're breaking from this, as we sort of said, this something that seemed to resonate was this family business aspect. You're breaking from that. But you didn't have like the emotional burden of having been a deep lover of Jesus, right? You're not, it's no. not necessarily a deep burden in that way. So what becomes your spirituality? Where are you? And it can just be jumping to where are you today and how you feel sure. about what do you, are you comfortable using the word as being spiritual or, or are you comfortable being like, no, actually I'm an atheist and that's, this is the word I use or what words do you use? And I mean, I used yeah. to use the word agnostic, but you know, it's like everything involves over time. Maybe not everything involves, my understanding has evolved over time. I also used to use the word spiritual and not in a casual way. I really thought about it. I mean, the 21st century is all about, you know, leaving our labels behind, right? Um, I, I only so feel I like I'm discovering new labels. <laughs> I'm like, woo-woo. You know, I just like, yeah. it's, everything's got new labels, it feels like to me. But I don't, I don't really know. Maybe I'm, or maybe, maybe I'm by having so many I labels, there's no one label. Labels. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> maybe I've decided to just exit myself from like the continuity of labels. Yeah, but okay, I, good. You know, I feel like one of the things that, one of the things that I always was foundational for me from a very, very young age was the human hubris of thinking that if there is this being that created everything, that created the hundred billion observable galaxies within this infinite universe of which we are one dumb little species on one tiny little planet in a solar system, in a galaxy amongst all of you know what I mean? Like yeah. the idea that that thing as omniscient and omnipresent as it could be gives a shit about us and not, not so much even that, but that cares whether we are genuflecting to its presence or, or the idea of he, she, it, they from a young age just felt so ridiculous to me. But at the same time, I think that as much as I, and this is a debate I have with my wife a lot and her family, they're very, very like science and science only oriented, even though she's very superstitious, which I find so wonderfully human. Mm. But we talk about a soul all the time. Like I have this like long running debate with them about what a, what a soul is and whether it exists and like what creates the individuality of a person. Like, are you... Nicholas D'Augusto, simply the sum of your synapses? Or is there something inextricable from you that might be called a soul that is above and beyond and more ineffable than simply electrical currents coursing through your body, you know? Yeah. And I remember I, a few years back, my best friend, my best man at my wedding, uh, I, I went to visit his mother who had suffered a, there's something more specific, but essentially an aneurysm, sudden, and had put her into a, like, a, a non-conscious brain state. And they, I, I, I asked if I could come see her, and he said yes, and I traveled down to... Because this, this woman 
was like a second mother to me when I wasn't getting along with my parents growing up, you know? And so I wanted to go see her and I went and saw her and she had brainstem function, but nothing higher than that. And she was moving around. She would move around in this, these like, like frankly, violent, like spells. Mm. And they had had to bandage her hands together to keep her, her from hurting herself. And wow. it looked so much like it's like the movie that you see of trying to create life. And it looked so much like life. But she opened her eyes and apparently she hadn't opened her eyes for several days. And I happened to just be there at a time when she did again. And, you know, watching my friend trying to coax her out, some part of his mother out was one of the hardest things I've ever had to see. But to see the difference between a person whose eyes are open and who's moving with vigor, but there's just no life there. Mm. It was like, I mean, it was just so expansive about an understanding of what a, what existence is, you know? And, and, and I don't know that I'm right about what I believe. Obviously it's just a belief, my own personal belief, but that you can have all of the trappings of a living, breathing organism, but have no spirit is a thing that's possible. And I feel like what I believe, if you want to ask, if you want to get really, um, walk out on the limb, truly what I believe is that, you know, when a life is made, whether it's a tree or a, or, or, or a dog or a human being, it necessitates pinning in a way, a certain amount of, of an energy that we haven't, don't have science for at this point in our development and that pinning of that energy remains in that thing for as long as it it is quote unquote alive. And then when it's time has passed, that energy is released back into the rest of the universe. And it's like conservation of energy and momentum. Like that energy gets reused. And I don't begrudge anybody feeling like they remember a place or a person or a or or anything because I'm like yeah there's probably parts of you that were part of, that were a part of something else at some point in the past right so um, you're leaving open reincarnation esque sure, thoughts sure reincarnation past lives like I, I don't necessarily subscribe to those things myself but like to me the idea of God as everything that it is just the the summation of all things that are there and that we are all just like tiny motes of existence within that, you know? And mm-hmm. we have like these brief, we have these brief sparks that we are, and then we release ourselves back into the great, the greater, the greater good, hopefully, or just the greater everything. And I think that faith and religion, if I'm going to, if I'm allowed to sit on my soapbox for a little bit longer. Is- hey, it's your show, man. It's got your name on it. It's your soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that I was thinking recently about like this idea of like this eternal question, which maybe someone's answered really, and I just don't know. But like the idea of like what makes what separates us humans from other mammals, you know. I was talking to my wife this morning actually about we have these we we moved into a new apartment last year and we have radiator 
heat for the first time since we've been together. I don't even remember if I've ever had radiator heat before. But anyway, we have no control over these things. We can turn them on and off. And then whenever the building, whatever in the building decides, the, the steam goes through those things and they get really warm. And then the cats are just literally like, yes. <laughs> and then I was like, I said to her today, I was like, what is their understanding of why that thing is sometimes hot and sometimes not? And then we were both like, oh, there is no understanding. They're just like, dude, it's hot again. You know, yeah. like, that is it. And I'm like, what separates? I, I, one of the things, obviously there's so many different explanations of this, but I'm like, one of the things that separates us from other mammals and other primates is meaning and the search the search for it the the insistence that there has to be meaning you know and yes. and i think that that like that we have to feel like we were here for a reason or that we did all of this stuff and there was a purpose to it and and that and that there must be must be like an overarching design in order for any of this to make sense and i'm like we're the only things on this earth that give a shit about that mm. you know everything else is like that looks tasty like you know <laughs> <laughs> and that is our that is our gift and our burden and i think that is why we will never not have religion i i don't think we'll have i don't i think i don't think it will be the things that we've had before i, I don't know that we're going to be with christianity forever i don't think so people will disagree with me. I don't think we're going to be with Islam forever. We prayed to mother goddess idols 30,000 years ago, and now we're, you know, praying to the cross, mm -hmm. you know, or answering the mosque bell, the prayer. You know what I mean? Like in 500 years, if we are, we survive long enough, we may still be doing that. It's very possible those, those two religions at least will still be around. And you don't know if, we don't know if, none of us know if, Scientology or 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 the Mormon Church or or any of these really really baby faiths in terms of longevity, if given time, will become these established large centers of belief or not, or they will fade into history. And and but yet, but people will still be trying to group themselves into a common understanding of what this all means. Yeah. All right. That's very good. Very, very good. I have one last question for you. Okay. What gives you hope and what makes you despair? And you can answer, let's answer despair first because it's nice to end with hope. So what makes you despair and what gives you hope? Uh, what makes me despair is that in general, we as a species are too ego-driven to understand how little we know about ourselves. We all think we can predict or that, you know, markets think that they know where the economy is going next. Everyone thinks that they can figure out how to fix this problem or that problem, or everyone thinks that the, they understand the, the root cause of a problem. And we're just flawed we're flawed as individuals and we're flawed as communities and thinking that we know the answers instead of having some humility and 
really digging into the problems that we have functionally and individually as, as, as actual people who are suffering from things. I think that is the largest stumbling block to us move, progressing forward, solving like existential problems like climate change, like poverty, nutrition and diabetes, like all of this stuff. It's like, we think we as a, an adaptable creature are more capable than I think that we actually are. And that holds us back in a way. Like, let's say this, for example, if this coronavirus experience that we are all sharing doesn't make you, and I mean, you, Nick, you, me, the big you, 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 Aaron, you, the Aaron, human you, the big you, the human you, if this doesn't make you terrified about our ability to deal with global warming, then I feel like you just don't understand how flawed we are as, as human beings. Mm. It's like, if you see how cities like New York City are having to have police go around puzzling over how to close down parks because people in the horrific epicenter of this cannot follow that order of common sense. How on earth are we going to get even the G20 governments of this world that produce, the, 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 forget all the small countries, forget all the countries that are run by despots or dictators, even though we, we are one of those now. But hmm. like, how are we ever going to get the leading uh, uh, industrial powers of this world to solve our climate crisis if we cannot, as human beings, put a mask on when we're told to, when people are dying right next to us. Like we are so flawed. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah, no, that's good. That's a perfect ending. That's good. Okay. Now hope. Uh, hope. (laughs) Not going to be easy after that one. (laughs) No, hope's, hope's pretty easy. Okay, good. Hope's pretty, hope's pretty easy. Good. My, my, my wife, showers me with kisses every morning, no matter what's happened the day before, no matter how dark the world is. And even if I don't want her to be doing that because I've stayed up all night writing and I just want to sleep in, um, that always gives me hope. I think so highly of people as individuals. I think that people I disagree with on almost everything philosophically or politically, I think they can be such beautiful people as individuals. And so that, that will always give me hope. You know, my dad and I, my mom and I, people of me and myself and, 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 and people who are, are, let's say fundamentalist of any religion, we don't have a lot in common. And yet those people are often so kind and so giving. And I had a fight with my dad once, an argument amongst many in my life. But in this particular one, we, I don't know what 
why this was happening. But I was back home in New Jersey and for some reason still voting in New Jersey. And it was voting day. And I was like, Dad, let's go to what is that weird real estate office is that the voting or there was a fire station next to the real estate office where the voting is. And I was like, let's go vote. And my dad's like, great. And um, we walked all the way there. It was like two miles. And on the way, I don't know how we started talking about this, but someone who's very close to me. I mean, okay, my manager is, is gay and my parents for years and years didn't know this. And, uh, and well, at that point, I guess they must have found out. And my manager and his partner sat with my family at our um, wedding. But at this point, we were walking along and my dad and I started arguing about gay marriage. And it got so heated. It was like a two mile walk. And I was, we were right on the verge of it turning into an ugly fight. And I was, I totally lost my patience. And I finally was just like, Dad, are you saying that if Tony and Carmen got married, you wouldn't come to the wedding? And my dad was like, no, that's different. That's Tony and Carmen. And I was mm. like, oh, my God. I, like, it literally was, like, I cannot even put words around describing that. And I told that to them, and we all had a really good laugh about it. But the idea that if you take things away, and out of a bird's eye view of the world, that on a ground level, human beings are kind and loving and want the best for their children and the world around them, then yeah, I think we have a fighting chance. We'll always have a fighting chance. Well, that feels like a pretty nice place to end it. Oh, yeah, man. Aaron, this was really beautiful. This was beautiful, yeah, man. Nick. Thank you for sharing. I mean, yeah, I hope uh, I hope you got something good out of it. Um, <laughs> you stop. Listen, I got to say goodbye to the show, then we'll hang out and talk for a little bit longer afterwards. All right, everybody. Um, hey, thank you, Aaron, and thank you all for listening. And Anna was Reese 19. was definitely not 18. Yeah. Yes, his mom was there. Yeah. Um, I remember he ordered an 80-something dollar lobster. Oh, my gosh. By accident. Do oh you remember gosh. that? Oh, my gosh. I vaguely, I mean, I, I'm remembering it now, but I started a beer, <laughs> I started a beer club there. And I got one, <laughs> one beer and then I never went back to Baltimore. <laughs> so somewhere but, around, I have like a beer club. Like if I drink uh, I, 50 beers or something, I get a free... I get a free six pack or something. I don't know. I remember Uh, Blitz being like, good luck, man. (laughs) Yeah. One of my memories that like is burned into my image from Baltimore is there was like an Afghan restaurant uh, that we went to more than once. But the first time we were there, we were there as a cast um, or like as, as everybody, like our producers took us there or whatever. And I go to the bathroom and uh, I'm standing there in the back hallway. And I'm like, now I know this must be the bathrooms, but I'm looking at two doors. 
One of them has a peacock on it. And one of them has this like strange looking bird. Mm. I'm like, what is happening here? I'm like, I should know something about this. (laughs) And then I'm standing there like an idiot. And Reese comes through and he looks at me and he looks at the doors and he goes, dude, peacock peahen. And then he just shakes his head and walks into the peacock door. And I was like, oh. That is funny. I'm a city boy. Why am I supposed to know what a peahen looks like? I've never heard of a peahen before in my entire life. 